Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, from MIPTV in Cannes, we hear from ITV Studios' Ruth Berry, B Entertainment's Hepke Needloff, Ukrainian producer Igor Olasov, and director Diana Marie Olsen, Rakuten TV's Cedric Dufour, and Banerjee Wright's Sean Keeble. The 60th edition of MIPTV wrapped in Cannes this week with talk of the end of TV's golden age and exclusive streamer rights deals dominating conversations, along with buzz around the rise of fast channels. A revival of fortunes for formats was also among the hot topics thanks to the success of Dutch reality game show The Traitors, with non-scripted more broadly expected to benefit from squeezed programme budgets and an anticipated US writer's strike. The C21 team was out in force and spoke to a string of execs in Cannes. Coming up, we'll hear from B Entertainment's Hepke Needloff about the BBC and NBC Universal building on the success of their partnership on The Traitors by jointly picking up new Belgian adventure reality format Destination X. Producer Igor Olasov and director Diana Marie Olsen discussed their MIPDOC pitch-winning project about the mass kidnapping of Ukrainian children by Russian forces and Rakuten TV's Cedric Dufour and Banerjee Wright's Sean Keeble talk about the latest developments in the free ad-supported streaming TV market. But first, ITV Studios earlier this year merged its global distribution and entertainment units under one team, led by managing director Ruth Berry, with the rejig resulting in the departure of Arjun Pompa. Four months on, at MIPTV in Cannes, the company unveiled the newly named Global Partnerships Division, combining formats, finished tape sales and ancillary rights with a view to simplifying client conversations. With a catalogue spanning titles including Love Island, The Voice and I'm a Celebrity, as well as new formats Scared of the Dark and My Mum, Your Dad, Berry spoke with Neil Beatty about what the new company structure means and the way the business is adapting to the present economic environment, with fewer, bigger buyers and streamers having to re-evaluate their approaches to exclusivity. She also talked about ITV Studios' move into natural history with the acquisition of Plimsoll Productions, how the firm's exploring new areas like the metaverse and fast channels, and what could be done to bring younger audiences back to TV. So I'm here with Ruth Berry, MD of uh, ITV Studios' Global Distribution and Global Entertainment. Can I start off by saying that is some job title? entertaining the world. (laughs) How is the unification of those two roles going now you've been in that position for a little while now? Yeah, really well. I think, um, you know, it's only been a few months, but it feels like we've made a huge amount of of progress in bringing the two businesses together. And I think more than anything, probably because it was a reasonably organic thing to do. I think, you know, what we've seen over the last few years is the market changed quite significantly in, you know, a lot of consolidation and there's fewer, bigger buyers. So, you know, we were having a lot of conversation with similar clients with different parts of our portfolio. So I think bringing them together felt like quite an organic thing to do, um, to face our clients and say, well, okay, you know, if you're commissioning Love Island and you're buying the tape of Love Island, you know, and all those sorts of things, and you're looking at the brand extensions, you know, let's have that as a single conversation rather than multiple ones. Um, so I think, you know, that that, that is, is looking really good. I think being able to bring more of the expertise that our, our formats business had um, on uh, ancillary sort of monetization and, you know, whether that is looking at metaverse, NFTs, uh, Love Island water bottles or whatever it might be, I think bringing that across the broad 
broader portfolio I'm quite excited about, I think particularly in the natural history space. Um, so I think aligning two brilliant talent pools into one feels, um, I mean, I, I feel pretty fortunate, to be honest. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a huge task. But I think just to comment on, on my, my job title, because you're right, and I think you'll be pleased to know that we're making that a little easier. So I think in streamlining the business, also looking at what we, we call ourselves from an internal perspective, um, we've, we have, um, I think we're, we're, we will be called uh, Global Partnerships. And I think for me, that is very emblematic of um, what the business should represent. So whether we're partner partnering producers on deficit financing of drama, whether we're partnering a producer in selling their content around the world, whether we're partnering with um, co-development relationships, co-financing developments, um, or, or we're working with our internal labels, you know, I think that our role is very much to partner with internal, external clients, buyers, sellers, um, and really look to how we bring content to life fund it, finance it, and, you know, monetize it. So it felt like partnerships was the right place to be. Sure. And have your new responsibilities massively increased your work in Trey, or has, in some ways has it made it more streamlined and a little bit more straightforward? Be honest. <laughs> I'm laughing now. Um, <laughs> I think in the short term, um, it's, it's fair to say it's gone up. <laughs> I think um, the longer term, it will start to streamline. So I think that the challenge really for me was to spend the first few months getting to understand how the two businesses could connect better and then get my, my senior leadership team in place. So I think until I could start to then put that team in place and delegate, um, there, there was a fair amount of, of floodgates opening, um, which hopefully the floods will start to subside. Okay, we're here at MIP TV, obviously. Uh, how many times have you been here, and what's your impression of, of the market? Is it still a valuable addition to the content calendar? So I gather this is the 60th uh, MIP, and I was racking my brains actually as to how many I've been to, so it's a good question. I think I've been coming to MIPs now, um, as they were their dual world, probably for, what, best 18 years? So I suspect I've probably done around about 18 MIP, or 15 to 18 MIP TV. So my fair, a fair share, I don't know if that makes me old or young, so don't answer that question. Um, I'm sure people will answer it from both sides. But, but yeah, look, I think MIP is taking a different form, and I think that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, I think there's a lot going on in the calendar these days, and the market has changed enormously. You know, we don't have, um, we, or we haven't had LA screenings in the same way. We've had um, strong London screenings come into the diary um, and I think that that you know MIP TV um, was a really interesting place for us when the US studios started to step away because we had much more limelight and I think there is a from what I've seen here there is a big contingent of particularly European buyers and sellers um, and I think what I hear from people is that there's a lot of good quality conversations happening and I think that that doesn't mean there has to be you know as many people as MIPCOM to be here as long as you're here having the right conversations and know what they are so I, I've heard a, a lot of positive buzz and the sun is shining which always helps. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your keynote today what were the what were the big themes that came up what did you discuss? Yeah, so I think partly, you know, similar to, to your initial question really is, is bringing the two businesses together um, and, and, and why and what that means and um, which, you know, I, I've mentioned briefly and I think it, it really is about adapting to where the market is and looking at single buyer mentality and I think really as building this sort of a one-stop shop um, is a crude way of saying it and having these, these bigger clients, you know, 
receive their content sort of in fewer bytes but with more breadth. So I think that that bit's really important. Um, I think the I also talked a little about some of our new formats, uh, which I'm very excited about. I'm excited about My Mum, Your Dad, which I think is a brilliant new sort of dating format where the kids are involved and, and got a I would hate to be involved in, in my parents' love life. So I can imagine cringing beyond belief, but, um, but also it'd be great, you know, to see your, your parents find new love and all those sorts of things. So th there's a great new show in that, and um, we're already having a lot of success internationally um, in multiple markets with that. And then uh, one that is, I think, really quite unique to television at the moment is Scared of the Dark. So I'm, uh, I, I can't tell you how sort of excited I'm about for, for many reasons, but I think, one, that sort of sensory deprivation of light sort of manifests itself in some incredible ways. And I think having celebrities in the dark for eight days, the relationships that they build, the, the sort of the fear, the fun, the warmth, the emotion, it's incredible what great telly that has actually produced. Um, and, and I don't mean sound surprised because it was always a great idea, but actually I think we have got far more out of that um, than we had expected. And it, it's just launched on Channel 4 to, to great numbers. So I think we've got really high hopes for that show. And then I think a new string that we've added to our bow over the last 12 months is natural history. So the acquisition of Plimpsol for us as a business was, was really important. I think natural history has largely been sewn up by a few companies and particularly within the BBC for a long, long time. And, you know, as it started to grow in, in popularity and demand, particularly, I think, with the, the global streamers and others, um, I think what Plimpsol have created is a really entrepreneurial, innovative um, natural history business. They've got some great talent with Martha and Tom and Mark, and I think Grant's got a great vision, um, you know, for, for that business. And and it's really exciting to be aligned with with them and and you know working with Grant and and trying to to fulfil and meet their ambition um, in natural history. I think from a financing perspective, for us, it's like tackling drama because huge budgets, huge deficits, co-financing partners, and all those sorts of things. So I think that's where we can bring our skill set. Um, to that, um, but it, it's it's brilliant. I think there's a, a long journey around premium factual and, and natural history there, and what can we do with the brands, and how can we build that out? And we don't have any constraints. We can be entirely agile in that space, which is what makes it exciting. It's sort of like we're, I feel like we're, we're sort of carving our own road um, with, with Plimsoll on that. So I, I, I talked a bit about about that. Um, and then we talked about the, the, everyone's favourite hot topic, which is around Fast and Avod and new technology. And, and look, technology has been driving the TV business for many, many years, right? And we've seen evolutions into nonlinear worlds. And I remember when pay-per-view became TVOD, um, you know, pay-per-view becomes SVOD, free TV becomes AVOD um, and fast in many ways, right? And so I, I think we talked a bit about that, that evolution and the fact that, that, you know, as ITV studios, we're very much in that space. Um, and it's a watching brief, really, as to what that is. I think, I think on the face of it, it is part of our ecosystem. You know, we're licensing content in free, pay, linear, non-linear, and, and this is part of that world. I think it's a brilliant way to um, monetize catalog and particularly long, high-volume um, catalogue. And we've got you know, great success with um, House Kitchen, Fast Channels, with our own YouTube-branded um, channels, um, Come Dine With Me, River Monsters, and various other uh, things in the market. So I think that's, it's a really interesting space um, and, and forms part of our broader long-form world. Um, and then I think the short-form world there, in, in Avod in particular, is interesting. You know, we have over 100 million subscribers to our YouTube channel for The Voice. Um, and, you know, with new technologies evolving into NFTs, metaverse and things, I think that's where I'm slightly 
slightly more intrigued by what the business model becomes, if, when, how. But, I, you know, I'll always be proven wrong. I remember, you know, 10 years or so ago, everyone going, well, what's this Netflix thing? <laughs> and now look, right? So never say never. I think it's a, a real watching brief and, and having our eyes wide open to where we think the next potential thing is. So we're, we're betting on lots of different new technologies, new routes to market, playing in that sort of B2C space a little ourselves. Mm collecting data and, and, yeah, seeing how it goes. Well, I mean, whenever I talk to TV executives, I always know that you've got plans not just for this year and the next, but four or five years down the line. Everyone talks about fast as being the new thing, but what do you think will be the next evolution of the, of the TV content industry? What will be the next model? We've, we've had the streamer era, now we're moving into fast and AVOD. What's next uh, um, two, three, four years down the line? Golly, I wish I knew that. And if I did, I might keep it a secret anyway. Um, but I think um, consumers are going in different ways. I think where technology is then enables that, right? So what's quite interesting at the moment is the TV sets in your living room and how you will access your content. So, I, I mean, I have Sky Q at home and I can pick up a remote and I can press a speech button and I can say, scared of the dark, or I can say, Netflix. You know, and I don't even go to an EPG. I don't even look at what's on or, you know, and I navigate in different ways. So I think that sort of search on smart televisions is going to be a really interesting one. Um, and this sort of new version of an EPG as, as tiles. And I think walking into your living room and having the, I don't know, the, the six, seven, eight subscription services that you take or icons, you know, and maybe it's ITVX and it's uh, iPlayer and it's Netflix and it's Disney Plus. But what is that living room going to look like? I think it's going to be quite interesting uh, and, and how you get prominence. And I think that in itself then asks the question around exclusivity. And how much exclusivity do people need? Because how much does the consumer really care? Because if I can just say, you know, a show, um, I, if I say I'm a celebrity, you know, I don't even necessarily know where that comes from, as long as I can see the show that I want. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. I think that landscape in itself and how technology is changing the way we consume probably drives a lot of our yeah. business models behind it. Yeah. I was just listening to a um, um, panel session with Evan Shapiro in The Kids, and it was truly fascinating because he was talking about Generation Alpha, who've grown up knowing nothing but phones and the internet and Wi-Fi and all, and all of these things. They rarely watch TV. They interact with content through video games, through YouTube, the metaverse. I mean, are all are these things that you're, you're kind of looking into because, you know, five, ten years down the line, this generation is going to be getting older and they're going to be, they're going to be parents themselves. And we really need to capture that, that generation, don't we? We do. And I think it's where... So one big question, though, is where is content discovery now for a younger generation? It's definitely not reading the Radio Times and it's not looking through PGs, right? It's generally through social media and your friends and word of mouth. So, and social media is word of mouth in that generation in many ways, right? So, so I think you've got to think about your marketing and your reach and what is the new way to, to tell people about your show. Um, so I think that is definitely at the forefront of our minds and, and discovery is, is a big one. Um, I still think that bringing people back into your mainframe is, is where the, the, the value is. 
So um, it's not necessarily about moving the content, but it's about bringing people from those spaces into um, a more premium one, I would say. I think Evan did also declare yesterday that, um, that young audiences do want to pay, will still pay for content. So I think that's positive. So I think you've got to take them on that journey that takes them through that sort of social media world back into premium and, and paid for content. So I think it's discovery. It's about then upselling them into a different world. Um, uh, and and sort of protecting your brands in all of those different environments of social media, TikToks and, you know, metas and all those sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's scary. You know, I've, I have a, a two and a five-year-old and, and, you know, my five-year-old just, I mean, if, if there's no Wi-Fi and he can't watch YouTube clips, doesn't understand why he can't watch his yeah. television. I think, you know, the idea of, of watching real television is... Completely baffling. Yeah, no, my, my three-year-old, I can't get him back on CBeebies. Once he no. discovered YouTube, all yeah. he wants to watch is, you know, videos of Tetris and people yeah. blowing up stuff in Mentos and Coca-Cola. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, little experiments and stuff. So it is, it is fascinating. That's not to say they'll never come back, though, to a more premium experience. And I think that's what we've got to learn more, is that sort of um, that passage of an audience over time. Um, and once they, you know, they graduate and they get their first paycheck and they want to buy a 50-inch telly, then they're back. Reel them in. <laughs> uh, last question. I don't know if you saw the story yesterday. It was uh, Jane Featherston of Sister said that she predicts that very soon there's going to be an end to exclusive rights for for our streamers. So we're going to see um, a, a return to more traditional distribution models and an end to exclusivity and in perpetuity. Easy for me to say. What do you think of that? Do you agree or do you have a different opinion? Yeah, look, I think I think I do. I, well, I do agree. I think um, exclusivity is a very, very expensive um, thing, and uh, I don't know whether the value it delivers to the platform now is equitable. Um, and I think what you've seen is, and I've, I've said it before, I think sometimes sharing is caring, and um, you know we, we've seen a few of those relationships now where uh, content has moved from, say, a streaming platform onto a a linear platform and I think it's only enhanced uh, the audience and particularly if you window it effectively so I think there's still going to be a level of exclusivity but not in perpetuity and I think what is that level that is required is it 12 months 24th you know 36 months and then where does the content go afterwards and I think that's so similar to the licensing model we have you know we license with exclusive rights for say 12 months at a time but the commissioning model has been exclusivity in perpetuity so I think you'll see the commissioning model look more like the licensing model, um, which, uh, you know, when, when streamers are rewriting their economics, really have to think about that, because if they're seeing a decay curve that lasts, say, 28 days on a show, why do you need that exclusive in perpetuity? Um, but the perception of choice and all those things to consumers is also important. So it's a delicate balance, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions as a streamer, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the right question to ask is, do I need to pay for all of this show and own it, only me forever? Following the recent success of The Traitors, NBC Universal in the US and the BBC in the UK are collaborating on a second adaptation of a format from mainland Europe. The two broadcasting giants have commissioned adaptations of Belgian format Destination X, which premiered on Belgium's VTM in February, they announced on day one of MIP TV in Cannes. 
Created by Geronimo, the format is distributed globally by B Entertainment, whose managing director, Hepke Needloff, spoke to Nico Franks about the show. My name is Hepke Needloff and I'm the MD at B Entertainment. So B Entertainment made a big splash on day one at MIP TV with the announcement that the BBC and NBC are on board, uh, pun intended, Destination X, the, the new format that is all orientated around a bus. Um, tell me a bit about the mechanics of the format and uh, the fact that the bus is actually here in Cannes. Yeah, it's, uh, we're super excited, by the way, about the, the big news that we were able to share today with the world. Um, and uh, the mechanics of the show are very uh, simple. Um, we have 10 contestants who have no clue where they are. We drive them around Europe, in our case, um, in a blackout bus. And blackout means that we can control exactly what they see and, more important, what they don't see. Um, at the end of every episode, they need to place their eggs uh, and, uh, on, a on a digital map that we have created um, especially for the show. And at home, viewers can also place their eggs uh, to see where they think that they are. And uh, the contestant that's furthest away from the actual location has to exit the bus. And um, in the meantime, during the episodes, we, we've created the, the, the most adventurous and great games that they can play to win clues. But I think what's important in this show is that, yes, there are a lot of clues, but it's up to the contestants and the viewer at home to decide which clue is true and which is not. And what is very important is that we try to mislead them, if you will, <laughs> but we always want to make sure that they have a chance to really play the game well. So we, if whenever a clue is not true, we always put a clue in there that explains to them that that could not be the right clue. So um, a big adventure, a lot of reality and great gameplay, both in and outside the bus. And there's a lot, of, a lot of technology on that bus where the contestants are living, which adds that kind of Big Brother-style element of uh, the contestants all living together. Tell me about the use of VR headsets and, and how you incorporate that into the format. Yeah, I think that's a great um, development of uh, the producer of the show, Geronimo. Um, uh, they always try to get the, the best shots, and if it's not possible, then they create something that makes them able to do that. And in this case... Um, they were considering uh, blindfolding their contestants. But they found out that if you blindfold them, then you don't get catch their emotion anymore. Uh, so they tried to find a solution to that, and that's how they created the VR glasses. And the VR glasses have the same technology that we have on the bus as well, where the production team can completely control what they see and what they don't. So they are blinded if we want them to be blinded and they can be opened if you want them to be opened. Uh, and what's very interesting there is that um, uh, a small camera is placed inside these glasses so you, you can still catch the eyes of the contestants. So all the emotion is not lost when blindfolding your uh, contestant. And that's just one of the smart a technolo technological and also one of the smart little things that are uh, a big part of making this Destination X stand out so much. And it's a paper format, so tell me a bit about how your Belgian broadcaster, VTM, the risk they took in terms of uh, commissioning the show and how was the bus funded and how comparable is it to funding you know, a new studio setup? 
Well, it's not necessarily a paper format anymore. Uh, that's uh, where VTM came in. Um, they take took a huge risk in in um, committing to this show on paper. And as you uh, well mentioned, it's not a, a, a cheap show. <laughs> it was a huge investment. Um, and, and both uh, VTM and also the producer, uh, Geronimo, made... Uh, big efforts to to get this off the ground and to get that bus rolling let's say um, and I'm very thankful that they uh, that they did and and that they still are open to taking these risks because I don't think that that's very um, yeah uh, common uh, at the moment a lot of countries are just uh, not taking that many risks uh, if we, if we look at it and as part of that, we're seeing a lot of reboots because obviously that, that takes an element of risk out. How are you kind of finding that challenge of, of broadcasters playing it safe? And obviously it's going to stand out in the US and UK because we have seen so many reboots there. But this is a new format. Yeah, let's hope that it really stands out. And, uh, and you're right, there are a lot of reboots and, and we all understand this as well. I mean, um, if you are a broadcaster um, and you want to do something new, uh, there's always a risk to it. And I'm very happy to see that there are so many countries already that are willing to take the risk with Destination X. Uh, even though it's not completely new, because we test, dri uh, we test drived it. Um, but but still, it's always uh, a bigger risk to do a new format than uh, to reboot something. So um, a big uh, ha shout out to all those uh, brave uh, broadcasters that are eager to get on the bus with us. And uh, we're on day one at MIP TV and it's great seeing people here. But obviously it's not as big as, as MIPCOM. And, you know, when you look on the beach, there aren't any stands apart from Warner Brothers kind of behind us. But, and you've got a plum spot in front of the Palais. So how does uh, MIP TV sit in terms of priorities for you in the calendar? Well, this MIP TV especially, I think we're uh, lucky. <laughs> First of all, that we were able to get such a great spot to, uh, to, to park the bus and to share and show it to everyone. Uh, and with no, uh, no one on the beach, we have a great view, so for everyone who's still in Cannes, please feel free to join us at our terrace outside. It's a, it's a good spot. Uh, enjoy it as much as we uh, are. Um, uh, but yeah, in terms of priorities, yeah, there, there's just a lot of uh, initiatives out there, uh, which on one end is great. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity to see a lot of our uh, uh, clients all over the world. Uh, but in a way, uh, it could also be more simple to have like a couple of key ones so we are sure to see uh, as many clients as possible. So a big shout out to uh, all those organizers. Let's simplify it a little bit so uh, we're not as scattered as we are at this moment, maybe. And in terms of the bus and as the format sells internationally, are territories and broadcasters going to share the bus or is the idea that you'll get new buses in, in new territories? Yeah, that depends territory uh, to territory, um, um, but we, we can provide the bus uh, and what we're doing right now is we're making uh, the, our plans for 2024 and to see how many uh, um, countries want to join our, or use our bus. Um, and then we'll make the big puzzle to see how many uh, we have with the countries that have already signed and also with the countries that are eager to sign. 
um, and based on that we will see if we might need a new bus. Um, so that's all uh, our homework for the coming months. The winners of this year's MIPDOC project pitch at MIPTV in Cannes was hard-hitting investigative documentary Let Me Go Home, which details the mass kidnapping of Ukrainian children by Russian forces. Igor Olesov, co-founder of producer United Heroes and director Diana Marie Olsen, spoke to Nico Franks about the film and the need for more industry awareness about Russian attempts to attend and do business at international TV markets. So my name is Igor Olesov. I'm Ukrainian film producer from United Heroes company, United Heroes. And uh, I'm doing documentaries, feature films, series and animation. And here at MIP I have a project uh, in, uh, among five finalists in the MIP doc. It's called uh, Let Me Go Home. It's a documentary feature film about Ukrainian children who were stolen uh, by Russians who was deported from Ukraine uh, to Russia. This is geopolitical investigation documentary, but with some artistic and creative elements uh, in terms of storytelling to bring more emotion to the audience. And we got awards yesterday at Mip Dog Pitch. So we won this pitch and uh, right now I think it's a huge responsibility to produce this project on the highest possible level. And we have really strong mission because uh, we think that this project should bring attention to this problem and to help bring more Ukrainian children back to their families. And in terms of the global perspective also to uh, raise this problem because we know that children are the most unprotected during any war conflicts and unfortunately such a problem was before during other conflicts but because of war in Ukraine uh, is so important right now for, for, for the world society. We think it's kind of opportunity to show this as an example to the humanity, to the audience that we need to be more responsible in general for for everything for for this yeah and what stage is the project at the mo at the moment and what are you looking for in terms of distribution and other funding partners project is at development stage we are doing research on the topic research on the protagonists we are talking with different experts experts from ukraine experts from other countries and right now our main strategy is to attach anchor broadcaster, European broadcaster or American broadcaster. And after pitch, we had some meetings already and we will have some meetings later. And as the next step, we need to complete development of the project and we will start uh, production. This is Diana. Hi. Okay, cool. Uh, Hi, Diana. Hello, my name is Diana Maria Olson. I'm based in Copenhagen and I'm an independent um, filmmaker. And uh, before I was living in Sweden for 10 years, so I worked also in Swedish national television. And I was born in Lithuania, so I worked also in Lithuania national television. And um, you yeah, pitched, and you pitched the project at MIP TV that, that successfully won. So tell me about your involvement and uh, 
and the birth of the project? I know, like Igor, he found me and contacted me because I was very interested about subject, like uh, children, and I have also created an organization in Sweden um, who fights uh, for children's rights, women's rights, and uh, yeah, it, so it is my topic, what I'm burning for. And my previous film, First Class Citizen, was also related to this subject. Okay. And given your experience, what are some of the, the challenges of, of, of obviously, you know, dealing with such a, a traumatic and horrible uh, subject? Yeah, exactly. It's um, very important, the approach to the victims, uh, because it's very sensitive, the theme. But uh, for some of the survivors or like children who were back to Ukraine, it will be maybe also like talking, some kind of healing process going through. Yeah. So we are looking at this quite uh, like as a healing process. And also like uh, when we are making this movie, we want to lift some uh, subjects on the political scale to take more attention. And yeah, we're seeing many projects coming out of Ukraine. Obviously, some dealing with the impact of the war, others not. You know, there's there's other things to talk about, obviously. Um, and you know, there was a great quote on one of the panels at MIP TV about uh, Ukrainian execs not wanting the war to define who they are. Um, in terms of how your you know the presence at markets like MIP TV and Series Mania, are you getting? The, the response from the international community that you, that you were hoping for? Yes, uh, we right now we have a lot of responses and new connections. And uh, despite that war is a huge drama, we think that uh, uh, it's kind of opportunity for Ukrainian filmmakers to uh, show their voice and to uh, show new projects, new ideas. and. Of course, there are a lot of projects based on Ukrainian topic, but the problem of this war, I think, maybe is more global. It's not just Ukraine and Russia, right? So everything is linked, and maybe right now we see something, during this conflict, we see something new in terms of how European people reacted, how world society supporting Ukraine, this is amazing, and we think that also there are few different layers of fighting for freedom and democracy and content and culture is one of the important layers and that's why we have this different kind of front line in this case and of course documentaries uh, based on the important and impact topics right now maybe the most important part of, of this uh, strategy, let's say, uh, how to fight on, on the cultural level. Yes, we have a lot of, of connections, a lot of feedbacks. Of course, we need to deliver highest possible level of content and we need to work not only on the local Ukrainian topics, but on the topics where Ukraine is a part of the global part. For example, right now we are doing another documentary feature film called Nuke Mailing about nuclear safety in the world, of course based on the Ukrainian case, but beginning from the Caribbean crisis, 
then we have a little bit of Iran, uh, Palestine, Israel, and of course Ukraine, and of course the main topic is how Putin blackmailed the whole world with nuclear weapon. And we think that this topic is really sensitive, and we need to talk about our planet and humanity in this case, based on, on Ukraine and what we have right now. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really important to have a lot of co-productions and cooperations between Ukraine and other countries right now, and we have such an opportunity. So, with Let Me Go Home, the, the documentary, um, tell me about a bit about how you're going to approach the, 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 the real-life stories. Yeah, it's uh, myself. Uh, I was raised by, we can say, invisible victim of war. Like my grandfather, he was um, deported to Siberia when he was a little boy. And uh, I was raised not by my mother or father, I was raised by him, so I was raised with these stories when he was deported, also forcibly taken away from his homeland. And uh, these stories are in my heart, and I was also impressed how he can turn upside down like the tragedy that can connect people, come together. And uh, so, for example, my goal also, like from this strategy, to find this beauty in this strategy, and somehow to find this, uh, you know, subtle way. Sometimes you read the sign, uh, just signs. You know, you need to read the silence of the child, and uh, it's very subtle. So, but I hope, uh, like, that we can uh, find a way how to reach their hearts, to open up, and. Yeah. And what was some of the feedback that you got from the executives at MIPDOC? during MIPTV? Uh, just after the pitching, we had some meetings. So we spent almost one hour uh, near the stage. And we arranged some new meetings for the next two days, for today and uh, tomorrow. Uh, yeah, I think uh, this speech will uh, give us more opportunities. And uh, we have interest from different broadcasters and even some uh, equity investors came to us to talk uh, about uh, investment in, in, in the project. But again, our main strategy right now to unite, uh, let's say, the best uh, people uh, around our teams, around our projects, uh, best talents. Uh, so we think that uh, this speech will open some new opportunities and we will have some results during the next few days. But of course we need to work a lot on the topic, it's a complicated topic. Uh, we're still doing research and working with uh, families of the protagonists and uh, maybe in a few months we will have completed strategy for production. And I don't know how aware you are of attempts by some Russian companies and Russian executives to attend MIPTV this year. Um, is that something that's kind of being talked about at the Ukrainian content stand? Uh, yes, I think we need also to fight with this at each film festival and each film event. And uh, maybe you know, but uh, Russian government, they're trying to spend a lot of money to integrate Russian culture and through Russian culture to have this influence to society, to politicians, so also they're using this as a strategy. And right now we have really a bad situation when even some big American distributors and some big American companies trying to, to play 
with Russian money and uh, they're still trying to sell some uh, content to Russia and I think it's also our responsibility as a filmmakers, as a producers uh, to work uh, with this problem and to talk with festival organizers and with uh, European filmmakers to have like one straight strategy, one uh, like strong position in this question. We're also seeing examples of TV companies doing it. And do you feel that that's being talked, to, talked about enough at TV? Uh, not so much. I think we need to talk more. And even I think we need to organize some panels on this topic with some uh, uh, executives, like bosses of the companies, top management of the different companies, just to, to discuss what, what is the best way uh, to have maybe some rules, some procedures, uh, uh, when we will still have this conflict and war. I think we need to keep all the, let's say, sanctions at this level also. Uh, of course, of course, maybe there are no black and white, and of course, maybe there are some, let's say, good Russians, but the problem is those good Russians they are not able to raise their voice to support Ukraine. And I think this is their responsibility in, in, in this case. But, but, but unfortunately, no, they are silent. So in this case, I think we need to, uh, to fight with, with, with this. Yeah, so. And any thoughts on the kind of argument that business and, and politics are separate and that doing business is, isn't the same as outright support. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting subject and again, it, it, it could be great, I think, to, to talk more about it, even with some uh, psychologists and some politicians, uh, because in this case, I think uh, it's not possible to say that it's it's, it's just the business and it's separated from the politics. It's not, it's not the case. Uh, because they need to understand that it's really simple. Those money, so they will sell content to Russia. Then we will have some money which will be paid as a taxes in Russia and those money will be will go directly to support Russian army to kill Ukrainian people. So it's, it's, everything is linked. It's really easy to, to show it. <laughs> so, and the same situation we have right now in the sport, it's, it's really similar. Uh, and so also we need to, to fight on all levels, you know, like culture, sports, a lot of activities. Yeah, because... Uh, I think there are a few points uh, which are important for humanity, right? Like education, culture, innovations, uh, sports, which is a part of, of, of our life. So we need to have, let's say, to build the system. And again, not only for Ukraine, but for the future. Because unfortunately, we had a lot of conflicts before but no lessons 
was obtained from those conflicts and this is really strange. We have this conflict uh, in the 21st century. We have iPhones, we have artificial intelligence, we have a lot of amazing things, but from other points of view, we have like uh, the same what was during Second World War or First World War, so this is really strange. It's like, as I mentioned, like my grandfather, he was also deported like to Siberia, and but when it was like in the past, but why is it happening now? And how to stop it, like how to break that circle? What can we do about that? With free ad-supported streaming TV or fast channels, the buzz of the industry at the moment, MIP TV organizers added a dedicated strand to the conference lineup this year. The Fast Channel Summit featured the likes of Samsung TV+, Paramount's Pluto TV, Blue Ant Media, Fremantle, All3 Media and more. Cedric Dufour, Chief Executive of Rakuten TV, the video streaming arm of the Japanese e-commerce giant, unveiled two new Fast Channels focused on reality and crime series, and he spoke to Neil Beatty about these, as well as the growth of the space more broadly in the face of consumer subscription fatigue. Tell me, Cedric, I was at a panel discussion with your colleague Christian Liarte this uh, this morning, and I believe you're you're doing two panels tomorrow. Is that correct? Can you tell me a little bit about those? What what what, what role you'll have in those panel discussions? So yes, Christian uh, uh, participated to a panel this morning talking uh, mainly about Rectan Originals, which is our uh, uh, own production we are doing uh, since we started this five years ago. In my case, I will talk about uh, the Fast Channel. We've entered this market uh, four years ago, uh, late uh, 2019, uh, and that's uh, the priority in our strategy to grow our AVOD and Fast market, and I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. Yeah. And I understand you've got some exciting news that you can reveal. Tell me all about it. Yes, because we have, uh, so we distribute more than 500 channels uh, in all Europe across our 43 countries and among with 100 are our own and operated channels. And uh, the majority of our um, channel are uh, cinema, chan- uh, cinema channel. The general is more movies because of our DNA at Recton TV. Uh, we also have documentaries channel and for the first time we will launch, uh, we had launched because we started last week, a series channel. Um, in uh, UK, uh, it's called Real Series with reality shows uh, that has been launched last week. And we're also launching uh, Crime Series, uh, which is another series channel we will launch. We started in uh, Italy last week and we launch in France, Germany and Spain uh, in, uh, in other months. So the idea is to increase our scope of, uh, uh, of, of fast channel, not only movie, but also uh, a series and obviously in the channel we are distributing so not on our own end of channel we are covering also news uh, uh, foods and many other topics so two two channels is that correct that the, the you're the you're announcing this this week yes two channels yeah. but for example the uh, the series uh, the crime series will be present in five different countries with different content in each country so the at the end of the day for us it's five times the, <coughs> the, the 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 work we need to do and and even for the uh, 
the users, they will see different programs, localized programs. Every time we have a, a channel, we try to, to, to localize the channel. So it will be around seven, uh, six to seven channels uh, at the end of the day. So the crime series, will that be like true crime, true crime documentaries and factual? Is that, is that the main thing that will be on there? Yes, that's the main uh, focus of, uh, of true crime, exactly, of the, of the crime series uh, channel. And this, this is an evergreen genre within TV content because any one of these markets you go to, there's always different trends for what's, what's, what's new, what's, what's hot, what's, what, what are people watching. But crime is always the one that people just cannot get enough of. Absolutely, and that's why it's one of our targets is to listen to our users to make sure that we have the proper offer uh, for them. So that's, uh, we, are, uh, uh, we try to be uh, uh, very flexible and to adapt ourselves to the needs. That's why also we have local people in all the markets, not in the 43 countries, but in uh, around 15 countries to make sure that we feel the trend of each market and that we have the, the, the relevant content uh, in each market. So these people are talking with the studios are trying to, to feel the, uh, the trend and, and then we, we, have a, we adapt our offer to the specificity of each market. And will there be any original, will there be original content on, on these channels or are they existing shows licensed from elsewhere? The majority of the content is also elsewhere, but I would say that our specificity, like the, the, the other platform building the channel, is that uh, the, the added value is that we, we, it's really curated content that we add to our channel. Uh, we make sure that we refresh this channel, obviously, uh, every month. So uh, our target is really to have a very qualitative content uh, in, in each uh, channel. So the specificity is not the content, it's the aggregation of the content on each channel. And can we talk about monetizing these channels? How, how do you go about that? What's the strategy for, you know, getting revenue from them? Obviously adverts to some extent, but I mean, is it more than that? No, no. So, so it's it's mainly advert, obviously. Uh, but uh, the monetization of the inventory is one of our strengths at Recten TV because when we launched Avod and Fast in late 2019, we started from the beginning working with Recten Advertising, which is our sister company, uh, and and the agency selling our inventory. So they've really begun. Uh, they are now experts on connected TV uh, inventory, which is quite specific, uh, and and they are able to reach very high fee rates in all the markets. So we, are we, we really found the, the, um, the business model uh, behind AVOD, which allows us to, to, to make sure that it's sustainable and not just one shot. It works for AVOD and it works also for, for fast and uh, for fast channel. I mean, it's interesting you talk about AVOD because in, in recent months, maybe for a year or so now, we've, we've had a lot of economic headwinds. People don't have as much money and they're starting to wonder whether they can afford you know, four or five subscriptions to a Disney, to a Netflix and an Amazon. Is that one of the reasons why you see that, that AVOD has got a great future? It's absolutely uh, the trend we are seeing right now. Uh, it's less obvious than in the US, where we clearly see this fatigue of people uh, uh, who have too many uh, subscriptions. It's not uh, the case right now in Europe, but it's progressively coming. And we are helped, I would say, by the, uh, the inflation and the increase of the cost of living. Obviously, people really uh, take care of their, their budget. And being able to offer them a qualitative content in AVOD and FAST is really a good answer to this, uh, this new trend. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because people saw streaming platforms, um, subscription streaming platforms as being the, being the future. And now we're going back to a system where we have adverts and with FAST, it's sort of a, similar to an old linear style of TV because you find it on your TV. So in, in many ways, it's almost like 
it's the future, but it's also almost like kind of retrospective as well. Absolutely, it's very similar, but uh, you've, the, the main difference in terms of ad is that we have data that we can use to make more targeted ads. So it's good for everybody. It's good for the users because the ads are more relevant to them. It's good for the advertisers also because they make sure that they can reach their target. And it's good for us because it's, uh, we can better monetize uh, our audience. And there are many uh, surveys saying that the, the advertising is better perceived on connected TV than on traditional TV, probably because of this target, which is uh, really important. So you're right, it's the old world, but with the, uh, all the, the, um, the technology and the innovation uh, coming from the digital world. Sure, and I think from my own perspective, when I, when I watched Amazon Freebie, I was pleasantly surprised by the, the adverts weren't invasive at all. You maybe get two advert breaks and they last maybe only 30 seconds. So is, do you think that's going to... Some people have been very sceptical of going back to content with adverts, but do you think once they experience it, they're going to be more more willing to have, have to consume their TV that way? Yeah, I think that people understand that they need to pay for the content, the content uh, uh, so they really accept it. But obviously, the fact that the content be free is not enough to convince people to watch Avon and Fast. The, the, the quality of the content we are showing is really key. And that's a, a, a never-ending exercise we're doing with the studios also to, to ask them to give us a license of, of very good of qualitative content. Uh, to be frank, at the very beginning of the uh, Avod world, maybe the movies we were showing were not the top fresh movie. But right now, because we've been able to monetize uh, this audience and to share the revenue with the studios, it's also a way for the studios to really uh, uh, give value to that content. So they are more open to give us qualitative content. And because the, the, uh, the content is a better quality, we have more audience. And because we have more audience, we can better monetize. And then this is the virtual circle uh, we can see during, uh, since uh, last year. Sure. I mean, when we, when we talk about fast now, I mean, people see it as a place to place IP. So like you have themed shows or you have one single show that just rolls on and on. Do you perceive a time in the future where, we, where you'll actually be commissioning new, new material for fast? Or do you think it will mostly be shows that already exist? That's a good question. Uh, I didn't think about it, but probably it will influence uh, the content, which probably will be uh, built just for this way of, of consuming the content. Um, in our case, uh, our main uh, objective is to make sure that we have an extensive uh, offer for our users. We have very dif different users, or the same users have different behaviors depending on the, uh, the day, uh, if they watch uh, TV by themselves or with their kids. So we won't really try to have a, a large offer and that, that's why uh, Avon and Fast is not our only value proposition. We also have a TVOD service which is the original service and the idea is obviously that the main priority and the main development now is the Avon and Fast mainly due to the, the market evolution, the evolution of the market but we really see this as complementary to the other service TVOD that we are uh, offering and not replacing it. Okay, can you talk a little bit about Rakuten's uh, originals? I mean, do you, do you plan to expand that a great deal in the next year or two? The idea is clearly to expand. Uh, at the very beginning, when we started Rectangle Originals, we started with document, with sport documentary. Uh, sport, because it's uh, part of the DNA of, of, of Rakuten. We've been sponsored of uh, FC Barcelona. We are still sponsored of the Golden State Warriors uh, in the US. So it's really part of our DNA. And the documentaries was a good uh, format uh, for um, to, to, to show this, uh, this content. So we started with this. And now, progressively, we are uh, expanding to other formats. And 
and other content. We launched uh, recently this year uh, a title called um, Discovery Canary Island, which was uh, an adventure reality series uh, with uh, six uh, uh, competitors, uh, uh, which were who were six uh, influencers from different countries competing within each other, and it was very successful. We launched recently a documentary on innovation, how innovation has, is changing our life in terms of education, of transport, of food. So we have different format. The idea, the objective for us is to find the business model behind the uh, rectangle originals. We need to at least be break even in our originals. And because these originals are available in the AVOD section, so the only revenue we generate are coming from advertising, this revenue are not enough to compensate the uh, to uh, the um, production cost. So we need to find brands who want to associate their name to our content. It's what we've done with uh, Discovery Canary Island. We did the same with this uh, fast forward, this uh, production around innovation. And, and big brands want to associate their names to this uh, production as it is a singular way for them to communicate on their brand. This is not typical advertising. That's more, uh, uh, that brings added value to them. And, and because because we found this model and it, it, it is sustainable, we have many plans of, uh, of originals for the coming year. So do you think that is a great business model going forward? I mean, previously there's been, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of co-productions where you get numerous production companies all chipping in money to get to get a project off the ground. Do you see um, going out to brands and asking for money in return for, you know, maybe sponsoring the show or something like that? Do you see that as a, as a, as a, as a way forward? We clearly see that as a way forward and, and even sometimes the brand are really reaching out to us and to say, okay, we want to build something with you. So it's a co-creation with the brand. Uh, um, uh, it's all the brand content, uh, uh, which is uh, which is quite uh, trendy, uh, which is quite trendy. And some brand reach out to us to, to build a production with us, uh, paying the production, and we are in charge of, uh, of the distribution uh, of this. So this needs to, to, to be in line, obviously, with our editorial line. We need... Uh, 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 now we, are, we don't want to focus only on sport, but we are doing many. Uh, uh, the, the, our editorial line is uh, for, for documentaries is that uh, Rakuten original is that they match our values, Rakuten values. We have uh, we are Japanese group, so the, the notion of value is really important in our group. Our values are empowerment, optimism, innovation, diversity. Yeah, as long as the project uh, submitted uh, match these uh, these values, we are working with. Uh, many brands to produce uh, big titles. And you talk about how important it is to at least break even on these projects. With with that being in mind, is, is that why you've not particularly gone into the drama space? Because we've seen production costs soar in the last 12 months. Is that one, one of the reasons why? Many of our competitors are using this uh, production to acquire new uh, users and new customers. This is not our approach. The way we uh, we attract new users is partnering with manufacturers with and having a, a Rakuten TV branded button on the uh, almost all the uh, remote control uh, and the um, and the uh, the home page of the uh, TV interface. So that's the way we we, we acquire traffic. So for us, the production or uh, we find a way to to, to break even or otherwise we're not obliged to, 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 to go in this market. And because recently we found uh, some successful uh, uh, production, that's why we want to, to, to move forward and to do even more uh, production. Can you talk just a little bit about um, exclusivity? Is it very important to you that when people pitch you projects that you, re that you can have that solely for your platform and nobody else? Or do you, do you, do you negotiate exclusivity for a window for maybe 
maybe 12 months, 24 months, and then say, you can have it after that? So for the moment, it was pure exclusivity. So these titles were available exclusively on Rakuten TV on our 43 markets. Then we were selling the rights in other uh, geos. Right now, because we are talking of, uh, we are talking about uh, more important production with higher budget, uh, we are considering uh, uh, some short-term exclusivity and, and maybe opening windows then to other people or even doing the other way around, uh, given the first window to a big uh, uh, a platform, which could be also an option, and just taking the second uh, window. That uh, We are very flexible. It depends on the on the title, on the talent we are working with, and on the budget requirement. And last last question. I mean, obviously, whenever, whenever I talk to uh, TV content executives, they have plans going four, five years into the future. Can you give us a glimpse at, to where you see the fast and AVOD market to be in a few years' time? What do you think is the next step? Where, how, how is it going to evolve? Our priority in fast and avid business is to build trust. There is a profusion of content, already too, uh, maybe too much content. The risk is that users be lost in so many content, so many channels, so many fast. And, and, and what we are working on is to say you can trust Rakuten TV, whether we have Rakuten TV branded channel or even the channels distributed by Rakuten TV, because you know that you'll be able to find qualitative content. So uh, it's what we are doing with our own NO channel. It's also what we are doing with the channel we distribute on our uh, platform. We have around 100 of channels uh, in uh, the top countries in Europe, and we want to limit to 100 channels because we think that uh, more channels uh, would be too much. So we are building this trust, and 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 and, the, and because we really think that in five, mm, four to five years, there'll be a difference between the trustworthy brand uh, like us and the others. Banerjee Wright's Vice President of Digital, Sean Keeble, spoke to Neil Beatty about the company's own approach to Fast, how markets outside the US are developing, and whether channels will in time move beyond catalogue programming into originals. So I'm here with Sean Keeble. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you're here at MIP? I understand you, uh, you did a panel discussion this morning. Um, what were you, who were you talking with and what were you talking about? Of course. So over at the, uh, the Fast Global and Global Summits, uh, I was joining the panel with uh, Kate and Jen Batty from Samsung TV Plus, and we were really talking about our fast channels offering and obviously uh, content and programming curation. Okay. Well, um, Samsung have re re released some news here um, about new fast channels. Do you have any, any, any news or anything to announce from, from Banerjee's? I think uh, we continue to look at fast channels as, a, as an incremental revenue opportunity and currently to date we have 22 unique fast channels live in the, across the globe with over 110 streams, um, so that's 110 different touch points obviously our fast channels enter. Obviously, fast is is the is the word on everyone's lips at the moment. It's a it's a real like phenomenon in the TV content industry. Um, some people have, have been a bit cynical. They think maybe it's a fad. You know, it might pass over. Do you really think? Do you think fast is here to stay? Do you think it is the future of uh, TV content or just a part of it? It's certainly a part of uh, wider distribution. I think the strategy really is around windowing. Um, when we're thinking about our fast channel curation and and strategy, it's certainly looking at those catalogue titles which are rich in content recognition, also volume and also market awareness. So we've seen great success with a lot of our single IP fast channels, predominantly across our game show non-scripted formats. You know, there could be a deal or no deal, Survivor, uh, it could be The Biggest Loser or Fear Factor. So what we're seeing is this is really another, you know, avenue for distribution and it's deemed more incremental value to those catalogue titles. Yeah. 
obviously people are interested in how to monetize it and make a bit of cash from it. Uh, what's the best way to go about that? There's a couple of dis business models that you can certainly take an approach on. You know, typically we see that these are non-exclusive playouts on either revenue share business models or advertising inventory split business models. I think taking that approach on a platform by platform basis is certainly, uh, you know, the angle that Banerjee Rights takes. It's really all about what facilitation you may have in place. Can you sell your own advertising? Are you going to lean on a facilitator to do that for you? Or would you want the platform? of course, to do that. So on a case-by-case -case basis, but typically you're seeing non-exclusive commercial models. Um, exclusive models are coming into play, but again, with that, you typically want to be looking at a, a license fee model potentially instead. Yeah. Is it frustrating for you when you see the US and Canada who are very quick onto the fast fast uh, craze and they, they really got, got their stuff together very quickly? Has Europe and the UK been slow to kind of catch on to the potential? I think when you're looking at a global play out, of course, we recognize, you know, 90% of the uh, revenue is certainly coming from North America. Um, but we see Europe growing uh, at, a, at a good rate, you know, particularly across U the UK and, and, and Germany. I think there are a lot of factors to play into here in terms of advertising maturity across the market, potentially in North America, as well as also hardware penetration. But I think we're getting to a point potentially where, you know, when we're looking at content curation and platform evolution, there are a lot of... Uh, public broadcasters, which of course in across Europe are starting to look into fast, ITVX of course in, in the UK for example. So I think it's about market awareness of, of a fast channel, but also advertising maturity and, and those advertisers of course flocking to the element of distribution. Sure. I mean a lot of people have been talking about the future of fast and wondering whether we'll see a time when fast channels will commission original content. Do, do you, how, how close to that do you think we are? I think again it will come down to the, the commercial proposition. I think it would come down to maybe looking at where it makes sense. And I think currently we recognize that you do need volume for uh, a channel. So we, we typically see that channels with over 150 hours of content are those that allow for uh, content refresh and also allow for more uh, viewers to obviously be attracted to uh, the channel itself. So I think if we're looking at commissioning and looking at potential exclusive content for a particular channel, it may be uh, content to, to help amplify content refresh or it might add an element of, of complementing that finished tape. So I think it's going to be a, maybe potentially a bit of a hybrid approach. Okay. And Banerjee's 20 plus channels, are, th are those mostly single IP or do you have themed as well? Tell me a bit about that. Of course. So there's, there's certainly a mixture of both single IP and aggregate channels. And I think we're certly taking a territory-by-territory territory approach on our fast channel offerings. So when we're looking at single IP, this really predominantly uh, revolves around, again, those formats which have traveled in their first or second window. So when we're looking at the, U the US or Canada or UK, Australia, New Zealand, the English-speaking markets, we're looking at really launching those recognizable IPs such as Deal or No Deal. But in more specific markets, and particularly across here in Europe, um, we're certainly looking at more aggregate channels. So here in the UK, we launched Horizons, powered by Banerjee in, in, in September of last year. And that's really uh, a destination for a lot of our UK entertainment back catalogue. Um, and it allows us, of course, to think about programming in, in a different way and really leveraging day, day part block scheduling um, and also on the clock scheduling. So what we want to do again is continue launching fast channels um, in a curated way, you know, region by region or territory by territory. And I think we've really seen aggregates um, work well here in the UK and where localization is available, obviously, in other uh, markets as well, including Germany. Mm. 
I think one of the big bonuses of Fast is that people talk about market saturation with the streamers. You know, people are just bombarded with TV shows. They don't know what platform to go on, whether they can access them. Do you think one of the huge advantages of Fast is that people can just put on that show that they love and they can, the lean back experience they call it, don't they? They can just watch what they love rolling for many, many hours. I think, I think absolutely the, the, the view is we're trying to create a lean back for you and experience and we're seeing that again with the single IP or creating curated content which is, it's easy to watch. And what we're really finding is that from a perspective of programming but also in, in perspective of, of growth and opportunity that absolutely we want to continue building channels which are, which are lean back but it's also being able to have content refresh. So it's, it's making sure you're launching a fast channel with enough content to then strategically program and strategically market as well alongside the platforms. Okay. Can you give us any idea of what content might be on future launches of fast channels? What kind of things are you looking, looking at? So it's the, obviously the, con the continuation of the, of the catalog continues to grow. You know, we're 160,000 hours of content. So we'll continue to really look at those, those formats, you know, the non-scripted, long-running series. Um, and I think, again, we'll be looking really at the, the reality and, and game shows. Okay, okay. Can you give me an idea of what, you, what themes were discussed in your, dis, in your panel session today? What were people chatting about? What, what were the kind of controversies and talking points? I think there's a lot of conversation around exclusivity and, and also um, channel discoverability. Um, the focus for our um, panel itself was around content and, and, and curation. And I think, obviously, it was a great in, insight for both the content um, partner and platform specifically to, to have this conversation. I think as content partners, we want to make sure that our channels are in the best possible light and also accessible to as many viewers as possible. And I think it's having that conversation, that active conversation with the platforms is going to allow for continued growth of your channels. And I think it comes down to, you know, are we reaching a saturation? Are, is there an element of too many channels on too many platforms? So I think, again, the conversation around exclusivity, I think it's quite a key one for the platforms to take on, obviously, for, for the year ahead. Sure. When I, when I talk to TV executives, they when they discuss FAST, they say that it's very difficult to, to get the rights sorted out. It's much easier to do that in America than, than Europe. Why do you think that is? is? Is that holding FAST back in UK and Europe? I think, you know, there's certainly an approach on, on again, distribution and, and rights retention. And I think, again, it's working with, the, with your licensees to ensure the best possible commercial play out is, makes sense. And I think rights retention for us is something that we're obviously quite strong at. Sean Keeble, speaking with Neil Beatty. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.